0: Hey, welcome to episode 15 of the podcast, Never To Be Seen Again. I am your host, Laura. I hope everyone had a nice holiday, even if you couldn't enjoy it with all of your family. This week, we are taking the trip to South Dakota. What I discovered in South Dakota was not much, really. I only found 30 missing cases listed on NamUs in South Dakota. And of those 30, half were male and half were female. But what I also discovered was three of those 30 cases uh, were still listed on NamUs, but the individuals had already been located. I think I may have spoken about this before. Uh, There is something that always frustrates me when I look up these cases. Far too often, the male cases have no information. Sometimes the female cases don't have information either, but it's far more common for male cases. Of the 30 cases I looked up, I, uh, I could have covered at least seven female cases with sufficient enough information to tell you about. But I struggled to find two active male cases with sufficient information. I did manage though, um, and I have five cases to tell you this week. So, shall we begin? I'll start this week off with the oldest case uh, case I'll cover this week. This is the case of Elizabeth Uh She is case number two nine eight three D F S D in the Doe Network, and case number M P eight six one four in Namus. She is also on the Charlie Project. Elabeth is a white female born on November twenty sixth of nineteen forty eight. She was 25 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 71 now. She has brown hair and green eyes and stood at five foot one and weighed 105 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Ella Beth goes by Beth, and her maiden name is Keller. She was last seen wearing a blue peacoat, a, s- a blue sweatshirt, and blue jeans. Ella Beth was born in Billings, Montana, and later her family made the move to Aberdeen, South Dakota. Beth attended Northern State University. I'm sorry about the train, if you can hear it. Uh, Anyway, she attended uh, Northern State University in Aberdeen after graduating high school. She later transferred to Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. In 1972, she, was, she graduated from Augustana with a bachelor's degree in social work. After graduation, she began to work as a social worker. While attending college in Aberdeen, she met Jean Vernell Lautemeyer. Jean was attending Northern State as well. Their relationship evolved quickly and they wed in January of 1970 beth's family were not huge fans of gene though on paper gene seemed to be a decent man hell he attended church and was involved with the boy scouts but they saw the difference in beth when gene was around eventually though beth couldn't do it anymore by 1973 beth filed for divorce In a deposition Beth gave under oath in connection with her divorce proceedings, she claimed that Jean had abused her. Of course, this wasn't a shock to her relatives. They had suspected that this was going on for some time, and it was rumored that Jean had sometimes even disabled Beth's car to prevent her from going to school. As fate would have it, the very day Beth filed for divorce, she met Jerry Thomas. They had a chance encounter while they were both uh, waiting on friends in a bar in downtown Sioux Falls. Jerry found Beth easy to talk to, and they hit it off so well that they agreed to see each other in the next few days. Jerry was from Redfield, um, but worked in Sioux Falls at the time that they had met. Over the course of the following year, Jerry and Beth became serious about each other. Jerry even moved to Sioux Falls to be with Beth. They spoke of a future together, I mean of course once Beth's divorce was finalized. On March 6th of 1974, Beth was at her home in the 300 block of North Indiana Avenue in Sioux Falls. She was alone because her boyfriend Jerry had gone back to Redfield to do some work. He agreed to call her at home between 9 and 9.30 uh, p.m. to speak to her, check on her, you know, see how her day was, and so on. He called, and he said, uh, he, as he said he would, I'm sorry, three times he called, but each time um, he never talked to Beth. Instead, each time he called, the upstairs tenant would answer. Now, I don't know if Jerry was worried when he didn't speak with Beth, but he would be uh, soon. The following day, Beth didn't show up for work. Beth's friends called Jerry and told him that Beth was missing. Jerry was immediately scared for Beth. Apparently, at about the same time... One of Beth's co-workers called Beth's estranged husband, Gene, and told him that Beth hadn't shown up for work. Gene went over to Beth's house, and there he found a loaf of bread rising in the kitchen, flour spilled on the floor, and a fresh pizza with one piece missing. Beth wasn't there, though. Her car was in the driveway, and her house was locked. Nothing was missing except for Beth, her coat, and her purse. She was never seen again. Jerry made the drive from Redfield straight to Sioux Falls when he heard that Beth was missing. He went straight to the police so investigators um, I'm sorry, he went straight to the police um, department, and almost immediately, police gave Jerry a polygraph which he passed, and he was cleared almost immediately. So investigators look into Beth's disappearance. They interviewed family, friends, co-workers, and ex-boyfriends with no luck. They issued search warrants for areas in Sioux Falls and other parts of South Dakota, but still no Elabeth. Police even asked citizens to check abandoned farm buildings and other areas that might conceal a body. It seemed like police caught a break in Beth's case when seven months later, three of her credit cards were found. They were located in a bathroom at the Canadian National Railway in Dauphine, Manitoba, Canada. This location was about a 10-hour drive from Sioux Falls. Police found no indication that Beth was ever there, though. They think the cards were left there to throw off the investigation. After Ella Beth's disappearance, it seemed as if Jean couldn't stay out of trouble with the law. Of course, Gene was a person of interest in Beth's case, but that had very little to do with why he continually ended up in trouble. In February of 1978, um, though, uh, Gene filed a, um, filed a lawsuit against the city of Sioux Falls. He claimed that he had been harassed and followed by police officers during their investigation into Beth's disappearance. His complaint um, said that they. It said that they um, falsely and maliciously stated, directly and by innuendo, that uh, Jean had killed his wife, although Jean was never charged with any crimes related to his wife's disappearance. Jean said that in March of 1974, the month his wife disappeared that he was questioned by police for 21 hours without being allowed to eat, sleep, or use the phone. He said he was then held in jail for nine days. Officers would testify that they had only been doing their job while, the, while investigating the case. They also testified that they spoke to Gene on a daily basis early in the investigation. They also testified that they had no plan to follow Gene. In the end, the six officers named in the suit were found not guilty of harassment. After the suit, uh, Jean went on to, uh, to be convicted of a multitude of misdemeanor and felony charges. Several of those crimes included retaliation for other matters. In 75, he was convicted of shoplifting at a Lewis drugstore. A year later, he went on a window-breaking rampage at the local uh, chains store lo- city locations. An officer by the name of uh, Al Fields caught Jean breaking the windows. A year later, Officer Al Fields had a pipe bomb explode inside of his car, but he wasn't injured. Don't worry. Gene was never charged with that explosion, though. In 1989, he was given three 15-year sentences for grand theft. When he was arrested, he was held on a $1 million cash bond after a judge deemed him a danger to two detectives who had investigated previous grand theft charges against him. Gene was also accused of talking about having two Sioux Falls officers, a former employee, and a judge killed. Those charges never made it to court, though. Gene and his parents filed lawsuits and appeals, but he was denied a new trial. He spent 13 of the 45-year sentence in prison before being paroled in 2002. In 1992, 18 years after Beth's disappearance, her purse, wallet, and checkbook were found on the banks of the Big Sioux River near Highway 42 and South Riverview Avenue, east of Sioux Falls. A search of that river turned up no signs of her body, though. That is the last big lead we hear about in Beth's case. Um, in 2018, Months after the Argus leader ran an investigation into Beth's disappearance, police announced that five leads had come in, including three with brand new information. In November of last year, detectives tried to revive the search for Beth. They brought in a dog to search that area along the Big Sioux River where her purse was found. No new information was released in, in regards to that search or the results of those tips, though. Law enforcement and Beth's family suspect that Gene was responsible for Beth's disappearance, especially considering that Beth uh, disappeared only three weeks before their divorce was set to go to trial. But in 2013, Gene died of an aortic aneurysm, um, taking all of his secrets in regards to Beth's disappearance to his grave. Um, <clears throat> Beth's parents and her sisters have died, but her brother and her beloved boyfriend, Jerry, are still alive. They continue to advocate for Ella Beth's case, hoping to be able to bring her home and give her a proper burial one day. If you know anything about the disappearance of Ella Beth Keller Lautermeyer, please contact the Sioux Falls Police Department and provide them with your information. So next, I'll tell you the very short case of Kevin Dwayne Marshall. He is case number MP34563 in NamUs, and he is also on the Charlie Project. Kevin is a Native American male, born on May 4th of 1978. He was 38 at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 41 now, almost 42. He has black hair and brown eyes. He stood between five ten and five eleven, and 165 to 190 pounds. He has a circular birthmark on his left elbow, about one to one and a half inches in diameter. He also has a one and a half inch scar on his left on the left side of the top of his head. He has a few tattoos as well: um, the initials C H on his left arm, the initials K D M on his left forearm the word Jewett, spelt J-E-W-E-T-T, on his right forearm, a skull with a joker hat on his left arm, and a medicine mill covered by a larger tattoo on the right side of his neck. He has previously had a broken jaw at his, at his chin, and he may have a plate or a pin still inserted. Kevin is a Lakota descendant. I also want to note that Kevin has had a history of drug and alcohol addiction. Kevin may also go by the nickname Weezer. Uh, Kevin lived with his mother at her residence in the Eagle Butt, uh, in Eagle Butt on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. The last person known to see Kevin was his mother on May 19th of 2016. That day, he left his mother's house with plans to attend his oldest daughter's graduation a ceremony from Central High School in Rapid City, South Dakota. Some accounts differ. Uh, some say the graduation ceremony was on that Friday, and he never showed up. Other accounts say that the graduation was on that Sunday, the 21st. This account uh these accounts claim that his, this i'm sorry the the accounts that say the graduation was on the 21st claim that his brother arrived in eagle butt to pick him up on the 20th so on that saturday but he couldn't find uh kevin regardless of which a version is correct he never made it to see his oldest daughter graduate While Kevin struggled with addiction, his family says he would have never missed seeing his daughter walk across the the stage to receive her diploma. Kevin's family made and continues to make an effort to find their loved one. They often travel to the reservation to look for him and ask the people in the area if they have seen him. They essentially have begun their own investigation into Kevin's disappearance. Throughout the process, they have been told rumors and stories about what happened to him. They take it upon themselves to follow every potential lead until it ultimately proves unfruitful. As can be with the case of reservations and like isolated communities, though, rumors and fabrications can add unnecessary stress and strain to an investigation. Some of the rumors about Kevin's disappearance include Mexican drug dealers in Colorado and an ex-girlfriend on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Um, But those two uh, rumors have been proven uh, false. Even with all the potential leads, the family and the police are no closer to knowing what happened to Kevin. What most everyone is sure of, though, is that Kevin wouldn't have disappeared of his own volition and missed his daughter's graduation. He surely wouldn't have disappeared for as long as he has been gone now. Kevin is the father to three daughters who desperately need to know what happened to their father. If you know anything about the disappearance of Kevin Dwayne Marshall, please contact the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Police and help his daughter see their father again. So with the first male case covered, uh, we'll move on to another female case. This is the case of Sharon Bald Eagle. Um, She is case number 167DFSD in the Doe Network, case number MP4382 in NamUs, NCMEC number 600185, and she is also on the Charlie Project. That NCMEC number, of course, means that she was a juvenile at the time of her disappearance. She was, in fact, 12, born on May 27th of 1972. She would be 47 now. She is a Native American female who stood at five foot three and 110 pounds. She had brown eyes and black hair, and her ears were pierced. She was last seen wearing a black and yellow top with a tiger, stri- a tiger stripe pattern, black shoes, and carrying a red bag. This is going to be a particularly tragic story, so if you are sensitive to juvenile cases, you may want to come back for the next case. 12-year-old Sharon and her 15-year-old friend Sandy ran away from Eagle Butte, uh, South Dakota, on the Cheyenne River Reservation on September 18th of 1984. The girls were hitchhiking together in Casper, Wyoming. Luckily, or unluckily, as it turns out, They were picked up by a truck driver. The man was 49-year-old Royal Russell Long. Sandy and Sharon get into Long's vehicle. Their desired destination is unknown, but Long brings them both back to his Evansville, Wyoming home. Long fed them, and then things quickly turned. Sandy's account of what happened next is that Long offered them $100 for sexual services. When they refused, he held them at gunpoint and tied them up. He then beat Sharon and raped Sandy. Sandy was able to escape and went for help. This is how we know her account. By the time Sandy was able to get help and the police arrived at Long's home, Long and Sharon were gone. It wasn't until a week later when police were able to capture Long in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Disappointingly, Sharon wasn't with him. He told police that he did not know where Sharon was. So police questioned Long about what happened at his Evansville, Wyoming home, and he had quite the story to tell. Long said Sharon and Sandy had told him that they were 18 and 19, He said Sandy agreed to have sex with him for $100. After the sex act had concluded, Long said Sandy demanded $200 from him. According to Long, Sandy threatened to accuse him of rape if he did not give her the additional money. Sandy and Sharon then told him that they were only 12 and 15. Long claimed that there was a struggle and he did not hit the girls, but somehow he ended up with a bloodied nose. He admitted, that he, um, he admitted to threatening them with a pistol and tying them up, though. Long said he ended up taking a nap, and when he woke up, he realized that Sandy had escaped. He then car- carried Sharon out to his truck and drove her to Cheyenne, Wyoming. He talked to a truck driver in a light-colored truck who agreed to take Sharon on his way to Dallas, Texas. He claimed that this was the last time he saw Sharon. Long claimed that he didn't realize that he was wanted for kidnapping and rape until he got back to Casper. But after he realized the police were looking for him, he decided to drive to Amarillo, Texas to try and find Sharon or anyone who might have seen her. Of course, police cannot find any evidence to corroborate his version of the story. They were never able to identify the driver in the light-colored truck or anyone who has seen the truck or the driver so prosecutors contemplated contemplated charging long with sharon's murder they eventually decided against it probably due to lack of evidence of murder and because sharon's father still believed that his daughter was alive in january of 1985 Long was sentenced to two life sentences. He accepted a plea deal for two counts of kidnapping with the purpose of taking indecent indecent liberties with minors and one count of aggravated assault. Originally, he was charged with two counts of kidnapping with the purpose of rape, one count of rape, one count of attempted rape, one count of kidnapping for the purpose of taking a hostage, and one count of assault. Most of those charges were dropped. Dropped with the plea deal, though. So as it turns out, Royal Russell Long is also a possible suspect in at least four other missing cases. Deborah Meyer and uh, Charlene Brown disappeared from Wyoming in 1974. Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey disappeared from the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma on September 26th of 1981. And if you didn't do the math, that is 10 years between the disappearance of Deborah Meyer and Charlene Brown and the disappearance of Sharon Bald Eagle. So considering the large time frame, I speculate that there are far more victims of Long than just these five girls. After Long was arrested for the kidnapping of Sharon and Sandy, he was charged with kidnapping and murder in Cinda and Charlotte's uh, 1981 disappearance, but those charges ended up being dismissed due to lack of evidence. Royal Russell Long had a heart attack in prison in 1993 and died. Shortly before his death, Sharon's father went to visit him in prison. Long, in true asshole fashion, refused to speak to him, though. So Long died without revealing anything about Sharon's whereabouts. Sharon's father is still alive, as far as I can tell, and he searches for, her, for his daughter to this day. He has traveled as far as Arizona, trying to locate his daughter. So normally, um, that would be all I have to tell you but I have a bit of a recent update in regards to Sharon's case. So in September of 2019, almost a year ago, a possible break came in the case. A set of partial skeletal remains were discovered close to the Jim Bridger power plant in Sweetwater County, Wyoming. The bones were later determined to be of a teenage Native American female who had likely, uh, had likely died two to three decades before Eventually, though, and I don't know how they concluded this, but the remains were determined to be likely of archaeological nature. So while the last time she was seen was in Casper, Wyoming, Sharon is from Eagle Butte, South Dakota, where she ran away from. So that is where uh, she is listed as missing. There were some unconfirmed possible sightings of Sharon in Wisconsin and Colorado in the years after her disappearance. Sharon could be anywhere in the United States though considering that Long was a truck driver and that he was apprehended across the country in New Mexico. So if you know anything about the disappearance of Sharon Bald Eagle or know where she may be, Please contact your local law enforcement agency or or you can contact the Fall River County Sheriff's Office. Now on to our second very short mail case for this week. This is the odd case of Andrew John Lovkin. Andrew is case number MP9404 in NamUs and he is also on the Charlie Project. Andrew's date of birth is not listed, but he was 23 at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 33 now. He is a Native American male with black hair and brown eyes. Andrew often goes by his initials AJ. He has a tattoo of letters on the top of his wrist, which wrist I don't know, Um, and what those letters are are not mentioned. AJ is a member of the, um, I'm sorry if I mispronounced this, uh, Seiston-Wapitan-Oyate-Indian tribe. He stood at six foot one and weighed 160 pounds. He was last seen wearing a dark blue or black hooded sweatshirt with the South Pole logo on the front, a dark-colored jersey with light blue accents over that sweatshirt, and a white t-shirt under the sweatshirt, tan pants or blue jeans, a blue bandana, and blue uh, and white K-Swiss sne- sneakers. So, on April 7th of 2010, AJ decided to go down to the American Legion, Siston, uh, South Dakota, and have himself a few beers. He was seen at the bar between 9 p.m. and midnight. Multiple people reported that at some point during the evening, AJ got into a fight. Some accounts claim that he fought with as many as three men at one time. AJ apparently received some pretty bad injuries in the fight, but the last anyone saw AJ was as he was being carried out of the bar unconscious. He hasn't been seen since. And really, that is all I could find about the circumstances of his disappearance. Then, no reported sightings, no details of the investigation, nothing i did find one thing on april 4th of 2012 a federal grand jury indicted 38 year old michael todd never misses a shot on charges of making a false statement he was sentenced to 36 months on those charges then i found his appeal which gave me a little more insight into what it was about Michael Todd Never Misses a Shot was charged because he apparently lied when authorities were investigating AJ's disappearance. The appeal says the defendant falsely accused two innocent individuals of assault and murder during the ongoing investigation of a man's disappearance in an attempt to divert attention from someone the FBI had recently interviewed in the matter. So, I don't know who Never Misses a Shot was trying to divert attention from or who he blamed, but he was obviously close to the investigation for some reason. Does that make him a potential suspect? The sad thing is that none of that helped authorities get any closer to finding AJ. They do suspect that AJ is deceased by method of foul play, but his body, alive or dead, has yet to be located to tell his story. So if you actually and legitimately do know something about Andrew John Lovekin's disappearance or whereabouts, please contact the DeSoto County Sheriff's Department. Our fifth and final case this week is that of Catherine Marie Turnquist. She is case number MP17828 in NamUs, and she is also on the Charlie Project. I do not have a date of birth for Catherine, but she was 55 or 56 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be around 64 or so now. She is a white female with gray hair and brown eyes. She was 5'5 and 130 pounds. Catherine was last seen, allegedly, in Hot Springs, South Dakota between six a- 6 and 7 a.m., on October 5th of 2011 at the time she was carrying ten thousand uh, ten thousand dollars to buy herself a motorhome she had already put a $1,000 deposit on the motorhome she never showed up to finish buying the home and she has never been seen again Catherine was reported missing on October 11th of 2011 the investigation into Catherine's disappearance quickly began to look like a homicide investigation, a suspect soon emerged and it was someone that no one wanted to think it was. Catherine's son, Matthew Charles uh, Tornquist, first met with investigators on the day that his mother was reported missing. He fully cooperated with the investigators and told them that uh, he had last seen his mother on October 5th. The investigation took a turn when they asked him about his car. He told them that his car had broken down in the Evans Plunge parking lot in Hot Springs. Officers went out to that location, but guess what? No car. A search warrant was issued for Catherine's house. Traces of blood were found on the sideboard of Catherine's bed. A close look at her mattress revealed blood stains on one side and indentations in a plywood sheet supporting the mattress. When the mattress was sent to the lab, two spent 22 caliber bullets were found inside the mattress. They also found a spent 22 caliber cartridge um, about six feet from where Catherine's bed was in the living room of her mobile home. A large splash of blood was found on the floor near the bed. When crime scene tech sprayed luminol uh, near the area, they discovered a path of blood that led to the front door and down the outside step. At the door, the luminol highlighted a boot print and handprint. There was also blood found on a hose connection to Catherine's breathing machine. A partially burned cell phone was found in a burn barrel outside. Efforts to clean up were obvious, but... Unsuccessful. Later, the contents of Catherine's purse were found dumped on a gravel road northeast of Buffalo Gap. Somehow, um, and I couldn't find out if they got a search warrant, but somehow police end up searching Matthew Turnquist's dorm room. There, they found several stolen guns in the ceiling of his of his room. One of which was a twenty-two caliber Browning rifle with its muzzle wrapped in plastic, a cardboard roll, and duct tape. Testing would later determine that Catherine's skin cells were on that rifle. A pair of Matthews jeans were also found, and it was determined to have Catherine's blood on on them. And remember that car that investigators were curious about? Well, they end up finding it. What they did, uh, when they did, they also found a spent bullet in the trunk. That bullet and the two found in the mattress all had hair consistent with Catherine's stuck to them. Here is something else. Um, So do you remember me mentioning that breathing machine that they found blood in the tube of? Well, it turns out that that CPAP machine contained a small digital disc that recorded the machine's use. Investigators got a search warrant to get the information from that disk. That disk was able to confirm that Catherine had followed her normal routine and gone to bed with her CPAP on. But the CPAP was cut off shortly after 10 p.m. on the night of October 4th. So, investigators formulated their theory about what happened to Catherine. They alleged that Matthew shot his mother to death in her bed uh, with that stolen twenty-two caliber rifle with the homemade silencer. He then dragged her body outside of her home, put her in his car, disposed of her body, and then spent the $10,000 he had stolen from her that she was planning uh, on using to buy that motorhome. In July of 2012, investigators believed that they had enough evidence to point uh, to Matthew. They charged him with grand theft and murder in his mother's disappearance. He was already in federal custody at the time for weapons charges related to those stolen guns found in his dorm. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the death of his mother. How sad is this story? Her own son killed her for her money. What makes it even sadder is that Catherine's body still hasn't been found. Matthew isn't saying where she is either. So, if you know uh, where Catherine Mar- Marie Turnquest is, please contact the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigations and help put Catherine to rest. So, with all of the regular cases covered, um, you know it is now time for the scene again. And I do have one for you this week. This is the scene again case of Mia Jesperson. 13-year-old Mia was apparently headed down a bad road back in 2016. Her dad claims he began seeing indications of drug use, such as track marks, on Mia's arms. Then, Mia just disappears from Rapid City on March 9th. Police concluded that Mia had ran away and began to look for her. It wasn't until four months later that Mia was found. In July, North Rapid City resident Gary Kaufman, age 51, posted a picture of himself and 14-year-old Mia kissing on his personal Facebook page. He also changed his relationship status to in a relationship and that he was in a relationship with, quote unquote, my love MJ. Mia was located at Kaufman's residence. Kaufman was arrested on a class two, class two misdemeanor charge of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. What is most important is that Mia was found alive, but Once again, this is another tragic story of a young girl disappearing to be with an older man. But (sighs) that is all that I have for you this week, and I hope that you enjoyed it, even if some of these cases were really short. As usual, if you like this episode or this whole podcast, share it with your friends. Like, favorite, rate, and/or review if you can on whatever platform you listen on, especially Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Doing that will help me will help this podcast climb up the charts. So you can also go find the Facebook page, the podcast Facebook page at NTBSA Podcast. Once you get there, give it a like. You can also send me a message there and tell me what cases you want to hear about. You can also send me an email at podcast at gmail.com with your case suggestions or if you just want to tell me about a missing case you know about. And I hope to hear from you soon. So, thank you all for listening. You are the reason I do this every week and I hope that I'm doing a good enough job for you to keep listening. Um, so, please come back next week as I tell you more about those never to be seen again.